Amen. Thank you, multi-generational choir. This morning, was that not a blessing? Once again, here. What, what profound and glorious truth uh, of the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus, the saving one. Thank you all for blessing us. Thank you, John, and worship team as you've led us this morning. Let's take our Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, as you're turning there, I do also want to say a word, as John has mentioned, today being Reformation Day. It's fitting we are in Romans. This book featured so prominently uh, in uh, the Reformation and in particular in the life of Martin Luther, uh, that, uh, that monk who changed everything. And, I, you know, I would encourage you I know Tuesday uh, is goes by something else. I don't recall what it's called. But Tuesday we do other things, right? I think there's candy involved. Uh, I prefer to think of it as Reformation Day. Um, I think uh, that 500-year celebration uh, is worth it and worth the Snickers. All right? So, I mean, if that so happens to coincide, that's great. Uh, but would encourage you to be mindful uh, that we indeed enjoy what we enjoy today because of what was started 500 years ago on Tuesday, uh, there was a commitment to recover the gospel. And just so we don't miss the significance of that, we are talking men and women died. They gave their lives for the sake uh, of this gospel. Even, even something as simple as the fact that all the songs you've heard and all the scripture we read are in your language. There were men and women of faith who died in order to make just that, just that happen. And so uh, let, us, uh, let us be grateful for God's work uh, through His servants uh, throughout church history. Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 20. We've been in 15 through 23, but now we're in the last part of this, uh, this passage in this chapter. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Have you ever experienced culture shock? I know you know what that what that may mean. All right. Uh, It could happen in, in a variety of contexts. There could be the more extreme forms of it going from one country to another. We also have that within our own nation, right? One region of the country going to a another region of the country. Uh, I can identify with those of you in here in the military, myself being an Air Force brat. No comment. All right. Nonetheless, that is what we are called. Some of you in the Air Force life will recognize that as a badge of honor. Nonetheless, I mean, I know what it's like to go from one culture to another, to move from Birmingham, Alabama to Dayton, Ohio. These are not the same places, right? To move from Dayton, Ohio, back down to Tullahoma, Tennessee. These are not the same places. 
And interestingly enough, not just region to region, but within region. Because 18 years ago, I became a resident east of I-95. This is a different culture too, is it not? And there's no reason to not proudly claim this. I, I recognize this fairly early on. Going to a restaurant, being given a plate of pork, and asking for barbecue sauce. He pointed to a yellowish liquid with red pepper flakes and said, there it is. I said, no, I've asked for barbecue sauce. He said, there it is. He smiled as if to know you're not from around here. But not all is maybe my disagreement with what is called barbecue. First time I ever ate fish stew, I ate myself sick. I ate more fish stew. To to this day, it is one of the best meals that I have ever had. On the flip side, fried herring is a waste of fried food. All right? I'm sorry. Some of you love it. I know you may. But I've had it. And yes, I've had it uh, just outside of uh, uh, down east, that little shack on the river. I've eaten it there. All right? And it was bad there. Anyway, okay, so... I've I've had it. I also found a new love. Homemade warm banana pudding. All right. So so in other words, you know, culture shock isn't isn't all bad. I found out that hurricanes are real and that hot in one place can be different in another. Humidity is different here than in other places. I also found out some other things. I found out that churches have homecoming, but there's no football game. All right, that was new to me. Never heard of it till I came here. Of course, there's ACC instead of SEC. There's a game with some round ball, all right, instead of football. It was east of I-95 that I first heard the term chimney instead of chimney, all right? Wait, that's not the best one. Scream door instead of screen door. And I realized my mom had a scream door. All right. Scott, come back. All right. Anyway, so these are some some of the distinctions. This was also the first time I ever saw a back barn, which is a tobacco barn. All right. Okay. So in other words, first place I ever saw that. First place I ever saw a pig farm. First place I ever smelled chicken farm. Okay. So in other words, there was a... Culture shock. Now, much to some of your disappointment, while I fully embrace, I've lived in eastern North Carolina now three times longer than anywhere in my life. This is without a doubt home. And I proudly take it. But there's some things I'm holding on to from the old life. All right, I'm sorry. I know what barbecue is. All right, okay, so I'm going to hold on to that. It is what it is, and we can agree to disagree, and you can agree to be wrong. All right, so we've got the barbecue thing, for better or for worse, and it's way worse. I'm holding on to Tennessee, all right? I know they're terrible. University of Tennessee, I mean, anybody else could play football. Maybe we could play football for them and do better. Nonetheless, it is what it is. And here's my last one. To the day I die, it is pecan and not pecan, all right? I should just finish there. All right, wow. In other words, there is now this new way of 
life. I mean, there's a distinction from where I was and where I am now. And there is this sense of of assimilating to the way things are. Now, it perhaps it is a bit of a silly transition here. Nonetheless, I think there is something to be said about what Paul is telling us in Romans chapter six, that in fact, the Christian life obviously to a much greater and better degree, is a type of culture shock. I mean, it is a transition from one way of life, albeit to a new and better way of life, but nonetheless, there is a very clear distinction between what was, what is, and for sure what should be. You know, as as we continue our consideration of of Paul's magnificent explanation of the gospel and his movement from just describing how to get saved to now what it means to be saved, more specifically, the language of sanctification, of being made holy, of being made like Christ, really, Paul amps up this language in Romans 6, really Romans 6 through 8. Paul is giving us you know, this profound picture, things are now different. We have been translated, so to speak, from one way of life to a new way of life. Now, that doesn't mean that the old vestiges of the old way of life don't sometimes creep back in. Paul accounts for this big time in chapter 7 and really then even carrying on into chapter 8. Nonetheless, Paul does for us, you know, a very helpful and important uh Work in describing for us just what it means to now be in Christ. That it's got to be more than just some kind of intellectual or abstract or theological reality. That Paul's point is to make it clear the work of the gospel involves a profound change of situation. And to make it most provocative, Paul describes it as transitioning from one master to another master. We were slaves to sin, now we are slaves to righteousness in God. And in giving us this kind of distinction, Paul is really arguing against those critics who would say, Paul, your view of grace, that salvation is all God's grace, that only gives people a license to sin. It provides no motivation to living an obedient life. In particular, that's it. That's the issue here in verses 15 to 23. Paul is making it clear that to argue that the gospel of grace then leads to license is to misunderstand the gospel of grace. You don't understand the gospel if that's what you think is going on here. Instead, Paul is going to use this language of slavery to say, really, to become a slave to the gospel is to be freed from the tyranny of sin. And that this this is what is undergirding our understanding of the Christian life. And so, there should be a result. There should be an impact to that. Me being in Christ, buried with Him, raised to walk in newness of life. The old man has been crucified. I'm now a new man in Christ. This should have bearing on how I live my life. And so, we've been looking at four realities of this. If we go on to the next slide, we've, we've looked at two of them. Paul begins this text by making it clear everyone exists in a state of slavery. Everyone. There's two ways, two paths, two options. And both of those paths involve slavery in some way. Either slavery to sin or slavery to Christ. These these are the options. And that's an important distinction. 
Because there's folks out there who'd like to say, you know what, I don't want that religion stuff, I don't want that Christianity stuff, because that's like a chain. That's, that, that's you know, I want to be free. Paul is saying this, that you've missed the point. You don't start out free. And just because you don't accept the gospel, you don't exchange the gospel then for freedom. It is simply a distinction between two different masters. Sin then is a tyrant, a dictator, and the result of being enslaved to sin will be death. Not only physical death, which we all face as a result of the curse, but eternal death. But to change masters, to become slaves to Christ... It's to enjoy now a Lord and a Master who is, who is, uh, who's benevolent and kind and good and gracious and loving and who's forming us into the image of Christ even when we resist against it because He knows that's the, the best life. The one that is in submission to the Gospel and the conforming work of Christ in us. We also looked at the second one last week. And that is, just to make it plain, only the gospel changes our condition from sin's mastery to, to, to Christ's mastery. So the only way to, to come out from under the one master uh, is to, to know the work of the gospel. And that's, that's what we spent our time on last week. Now, this morning, let's, let's finish this up. Two more. Number three, if you want to fill in blanks, they are back in your bulletin, all right, this week. So made sure that uh, the info got to the right hands. So a change in our master manifests itself in our conduct. So Paul, again, is making this logical argument. This is what Paul does so well. This is why I love Romans. Because I, I don't know if you figured this out. I'm a pastor who likes to do points, right? Sometimes they alliterate. Have you, have you noticed this? Have you all picked up on this? All right. Outlines are important to me. And Romans just screams one big outline. All right. And so I love the way Paul argues. It just makes so much sense. Everyone's a slave to somebody. The only way to get out of being a slave to the tyrant of sin is to know the gospel of Christ. But he's not done. The impact of that transition from this life to this life comes out in the way that you live. In other words, who your master is will show itself in how you live your life. Let's look again, beginning in verse 20. Paul has a really interesting way of saying this. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. I think at this point, Paul's almost being sarcastic. So, so he's addressing those who would say, you know, well, to not be in Christ, to not be a Christian, to not submit to the gospel, I'm now free to live my life. And Paul is saying, well, in reality, the only thing you're free to do when you're not a Christian, the only thing you're free to do is not be righteous. That's it. That's what, you're, that's what you're freed from. Again, he's using it in, a, in kind of a, an ironic kind of way. It's another kind of way to prove his point. So, so when, when you were slaves to sin, that, that was your life. That's who you are. That's how you're living. That's, that's the conduct and character. That's the flavor of life. It is going to be consistent with one who is under a master like sin. Meaning then, by default, righteousness is not an option. Make no mistake about this, church. Unbelievers cannot be righteous. Now, I know what you're thinking. Does that mean unbelievers always do bad stuff? Well, no. Can they do things that you and I might qualify as moral? Well, certainly they can. 
But again, based on what we've seen in in Romans, does that make them righteous? No. Does that give them right standing with God? Does that mean they are now uh, no longer under the curse of sin? Well, of course not. My my, my actions don't change that. Paul is just saying here, look, the person who is still in sin, that person is, in fact, freed from righteousness. But then he adds this question, and notice this leading question. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? Don't you love the way he asked that question? It's like somebody coming up to you and saying, how many times have you cheated on your taxes? Right? In other words, that you're making an accusation, right, by asking me the question. You're not saying, have you cheated on your taxes? You're coming up to me and saying, how many times have you done this? When Paul says, what fruit do you have of the things of which you are now ashamed? I mean, what's the only answer here? What do I have? Shameful fruit. We all recognize the language of fruit, right? We've seen this before. You see it all throughout the New Testament. You see this language that, that fruit is, is, is the imagery that is used. Jesus uses it. Paul uses it. Uh, we have it regularly found, even in the Old Testament, uh, that fruit is often used as the image uh, of the, you know, a healthy tree produces healthy fruit. You can tell a tree or a, a vine by the fruit it produces. Same language for believers. You, you can tell what kind of vine it is by the fruit it produces. Paul is saying, all right, so when you were free from righteousness and, and then were slaves to sin, what did that get you? It's not that I am prone to quoting Dr. Phil all that often, right? But how's that working for you? All right, I mean, that's kind of what he's getting at here. How did that work out for you? It only produced fruit. It only produced the kind of life that's shameful, disgraceful. You want to talk about it. Now, that doesn't mean that believers can't do shameful, disgraceful things. We certainly can but again, Paul is talking about what, you know, what is the general kind of contours of life? Looking at what you did before Christ. Saying that produced a certain kind of fruit. And that kind of fruit is shameful fruit. And then he adds this, for the end of those things is death. And that's, that's the end result. It's death. And it's not just physical death, by the way. He is talking about eternal death. We see that in verse 23. This is, the, this is the, the, the main imagery. It's not just physical death, but eternal death. But then he, then he transitions away from those who are slaves to sin to now those who are slaves to righteousness. Verse 22. But now. Notice that, that transition. That's a great one. We read it in Romans chapter 3. It happens throughout this letter. It, it's your lifeline, so to speak. Because otherwise... Romans is a really harsh book. If Romans is what it is without the but nows, okay, whoo, we're probably not talking about it. I mean, in other words, it's, it's hard. It's hard enough. But the fact that we have these moments of transition. He did it earlier uh, in verse 19 and he's, he's uh, verse, uh, the first part of this text. Now he's doing it again. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, You have your fruit to holiness. In the end, everlasting life. So again, I mean, he's setting up the dichotomy that he's at all throughout. There's two ways. There's two paths. There's two options here. 
Same thing we looked at in Psalm 1. I mean, this, this is what life is. So the way of sin produces a certain kind of fruit. How can you tell if you're on the way of, to sin? Look at the fruit. Look at the characteristics, qualities, attributes, ideologies, philosophies, the driving principles of life. Are they consistent with Christ-like character or are they consistent with worldly character? And listen, I don't know who all may be here and what kind of condition, but if you think you are a believer and yet the, the, the majority of the fruit produced in your life is that which is consistent with sin, then there, there needs to probably be, as they used to say, a coming to Jesus moment. Because something's off. Again, Paul has no expectation that the believer will be perfect. But he is saying there will be the general expectation of the right kind of fruit. Lost person, fruit of sin. The believer... Now you've been set free and you're now slaves of God. So what's going to happen? You're going to have fruit to holiness. The word holiness could also be sanctification. In other words, your life is now going to have the general contours that are consistent with somebody who is in Christ. With somebody who now has God as your master. This is the important distinction that's now happened as a result. A change in our master is going to manifest itself in our conduct. This, this, is, this is just the way that it, it should happen. Now, again, this is important because we don't want to get into the mindset. We, we, don't, we, don't, want, we don't want to think this way, that, that the gospel just sets me free from something. I mean, it does, right? The gospel sets me free from sin, sin's mastery, sin's consequences. I mean, this is the glory of the gospel, that those who... Trust Christ, crucified, resurrected, confessing their sins based on nothing else but what God has done for them in Christ Jesus. That, 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 is, that is glorious truth. That, that now that, that sin, my life has, has been forgiven, I'm freed from sin. But that doesn't mean that God just then lets me go, right? It's not just that He just frees me from something and lets me go on my way. As if I were a little caged parakeet. It's hard for you to imagine me as a caged parakeet, but you can give it your best shot, alright? Maybe a really big caged parakeet, alright? And the door is opened and now I get to fly free? No, I've been, I've been changed. I had an owner before and now I've got a new owner. It's, it's not like I've just been let go. To run wild and free. I have been freed from something, but I've also been freed to slavery to Jesus Christ. I know that that's, that's an odd thing to say, but that is exactly the language he's getting at. You know, the best illustration of this is found in the Old Testament. Anybody recall a little situation with the Hebrews in a place called Egypt? Does this sound familiar? Ring any bells? All right. Guy named Moses. Maybe this, maybe, all right, maybe this is starting to feel familiar now. Okay. So we have God's people, the Hebrews, in slavery in Egypt. God comes to Moses and says, I want you to go, Pharaoh, and say, let my people go. His charge to Moses is quite clear. You are going to go and set my people free. But what happened when they left Egypt? Ten plagues later, right? Two million of them walking out. The Egyptians showering them with gold and silver and all their stuff. Just get out, okay? Just get out. That's all, he's, that's all they're concerned with. 
Because keep in mind, the Egyptians and Pharaoh, they didn't know there were only going to be ten plagues. You and I knew that, right? We know that going into it. But Pharaoh had no idea if there was going to be eleven, or twelve, or twenty, or fifty. In other words, these guys have got to get out. Otherwise, there won't be a, there won't be a brick standing in Egypt. But when they left Egypt, did God, did they just then, were they just then free to roam the wilds of the desert? Well, no, because God said something specific. Go, set my people free, and bring them back to this mountain that they may worship me. I will be their God, and they will be my people. In other words, the, the, Perhaps the clearest illustration in the Old Testament of this transition, and and there's no doubt in my mind, Paul has this story in mind when he's writing Romans 6. There's no doubt in my mind. This is what is background behind him as he is thinking about this. When he he writes about being slaves to sin, now slaves to Christ, it is Israel leaving the tyranny of Egypt and being brought into the gracious provision of God. It's not that you're just free and let go. But you, now you are to conform yourself to a new master. Now, this, this then means something very specific. It means now as a believer, I need to engage in actions, characteristics, qualities, ideas that are consistent with who I am in Christ. Let me tell you what this means. Because there's a lot, a lot of folks in the evangelical world that don't like to talk about what I'm about to say. That often piques interest when I say stuff like that, doesn't it? Oh, what's he, who's, he, who's he going to go after now? All right, now I'm not going to name any names, but I will tell you there are plenty of folks who will say what I'm about to say is problematic. You as a believer are commanded by God. It is expected of you. All that language, by the way, would have some people just throwing a fit. You are commanded by God and expected by Him to obey. You are commanded to do good works. There it is, I said it. Good works. I use the word. And what do we often, what do we as evangelicals often do when we respond to that? Oh, oh, whoa, don't want to say good works because that's, that's what others think saves you, right? You don't want, to, don't want to be legalistic. Come on. Do you know how far away most evangelicals are from legalism? Have you seen the evangelical world out there today? Have you seen the vast majority of churches? Yes, there are some that tend toward legalism, but come on. 99% of them are nowhere near legalism, all right? In fact, most of them are way closer to, to taking license with things than being legalistic. Now, I think people like to grovel in their weakness and sinfulness. And Paul is saying, you've been transferred from being a sin to slave to being a sin to, to being a slave to righteousness. You are now under God Himself. He is your master, and the result should be fruit that is consistent with holiness, sanctification. That means a part of Christian living is good works. You're not saved by it, but you are called unto it. Let me give you a verse here that I think best explains this. Though there are more than a dozen of them that say something similar. Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. So notice the teaching here of grace. Grace of God has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, 
We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. Okay, again, this language of grace, we've been, we have been saved and redeemed by his grace. Every lawless deed, purify himself, uh, for himself, his own special people. Now notice that last phrase. Zealous for good works. I know you wonder if I make the stuff up that I preach. I promise you I don't. It's just right there in the text. This is the expectation that believers would bear fruit that is consistent with what it means to be a slave to Christ. So really the question comes to us. It's a very simple one. What master does my life reflect? Which master do I look like? And I can only look like one or the other. Which master do I look like? What's my fruit? Let me ask you this in another way, and it's a comment I've made before. It's a comparison I've made before. See, I think here's the problem. I think for a lot of believers, their Christianity is a hobby. You know when they practice it? Sundays at 10:30 when they walk through the door. Let me ask you. Does your faith begin at 10.30 and end at 11.45? All right, when you walk back out? Is that the content of your Christian walk? If it is, something is radically wrong here. Something is radically wrong. The gospel should produce in me fruit that is consistent with that gospel. Now, let me give you one last one, all right? And this this actually is a summation point in many ways, bringing this to a close, and then he'll he'll go on then into a follow up question. But number four, the master we serve now determines our existence in eternity. The master we serve now determines our existence in eternity. Look what it says in verse twenty three. This may sound familiar to you. It's one of the more famous verses. For the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, notice notice he's making a very specific statement. He says the wages of sin is death. And because he says at the end, in verse 23, the gift is eternal life. When he says death, he means eternal death. The wages of sin, I'm going to use another word that you don't hear a lot in churches these days. The wages of sin is eternity in hell. That those are the wages of sin. For sin, And did you notice the distinction in the language? Wages of sin versus the gift of our Lord. Now, what's a wage? I mean, this is, this is an image that translates 2,000 years, entire day, right? What is a wage? A wage is payment. A wage is something that has been earned. It's been earned. Let, let me ask you this. How many of you this week got a paycheck? For doing your job, walked into the boss's office and said, I just want to thank you for your kindness and generosity and paying me for doing work for you. Anybody? Anybody walk in and say, man, this is real, this is really good of you. This is really good of you that you did this just out of the kindness of your own heart, that you wrote me a check for the work I did for you. No, in fact, some of you may have gotten that paycheck and thought, I'm pretty sure I did 
I was worth more than this, all right? In other words, that's often what happens, but you understand the language of wage, do you not? Paycheck. Now, here's why this is important, and I want you to get this. This means the person who ends up eternally separated from God doesn't do so because God is unjust or unfair. By the way, just drop all your notions of fairness and justice because we in our culture don't understand either one of them. All right? Just tell you that right now. We think anything's unfair if I'm not getting whatever I want when I want it. All right? That becomes unfair. All right? That's unjust. If I'm not getting what I want when I want it, oh, this is unjust. All right? That, so we, we miss the language. We do it all the time. Now, in God's economy of things, a lot of folks like to say, well, that's unjust, that's unmerciful, it's unloving. No, this says the wages of sin is eternal separation from God. That means the sinner has earned it. Earned it. What is salvation? The gift of God is eternal life. And I love how some translations put it, I think the ESV uses free gift. I love the word free gift. I love adding that word to it. Because sometimes you get a gift that's not free, right? You've gotten gifts from somebody that expected something in return. You've given something and you expect it in return, alright? It's not actually a gift, right? That's reciprocity, right? That's quid pro quo, as they may say. I'm scratching your back, you scratch my back. Whatever weird cliche you want to use, alright? This is not what the gospel is. God doesn't benefit from this transaction. God's not made a better God. God's not made a more glorious God. It's not like He has more glory for saving us than He had before. God's as glorious as God can be. Now, it does bring Him glory when we're saved. But this is, this is a free gift from Him. And I want, to notice that, I want you to notice that last phrase then. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Savior, Lord. Lord, everybody's serving one of two lords. Either sin's your Lord or Christ is your Lord. That's it. That's it. That is the biblical paradigm. That is the setup. This is it. Now again, here's the good news. The good news is that when it comes to being under the right Lord, it's not about what you do. You don't have to earn this. It's given to you by God's grace. If you're here today and you've never trusted in this gospel, if, if your view of being right with God is somehow you've got to earn it by doing the right works, trust me. You haven't even done one work that ascends to the level of that which honors God. Not even one. Your best work is still way below what God would deem to be the worst. All right. The only way you can be made right with God is by not doing... Anything but trusting what he's done for you in Christ. And if you've not submitted to the gospel, trusted in the one who died, rose from the dead, and asked for forgiveness based on what Christ and Christ alone has done, I would implore you to do that today. today. The free gift is available to you. It is available to you. God in his grace can and will save. Submit to the gospel of Jesus Christ. For others... I'd say you are a believer. Let me encourage you to think carefully then about the conduct and fruit of your life. Is it that which is consistent with the Master, Jesus Christ? Maybe you'd say it hasn't been. You can come and you can kneel here and pray. If you'd like me to pray with you, I will. That you would respond then to what God is doing in you through His Word, 
to continue that sanctifying work. And I can think of no better song to sing than grace that is greater than all our sins. See, the good news is, even believer, your failures are still covered by God's grace. And God in His grace will still restore you and bring you back into health and holiness and faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Let's stand together and I'll pray. After I pray, then this time will be open to you, Father God. We do thank you for gathering us. We do thank you for this word. We, we are grateful for what you've done for us in Christ. And Father, I pray that we are also mindful then of what that means. Those, those who have been uh, transferred from the kingdom of sin and darkness and its slavery to the kingdom of light and Christ and your mastery, that we would now live in a manner that you have enabled us to live by your grace. And that's to live in obedience and to be zealous for good works. So bring your word to bear on us and that whatever happens here today, uh, Lord, I pray that, that as your word forms and fashions us and we respond appropriately, that it would be all for your glory. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.